continue along with the, the sermon series. Uh, if you've been worshiping with us, we've been in the middle of a series in the book of Psalms, and today we're going to consider Psalm chapter 81. So if you're able, I want to encourage you to stand at this time as an act of reverence and worship as I read the entire Psalm 81, verses 1 to 16. This is God's word for us. I pray that your, your hearts would be open, your minds would be teachable, your wills will be moldable as we listen to the word of God here today. Psalm 81. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. And this is the word of God today. You could take your seats at this time. One of the reasons in the recent years that we always take a moment to look at a handful of psalms in the summer is because it seems, at least for the way that our culture has an ebb and flow, psalms is a way that the Word of God could speak into our lives, allowing us to be honest about where life has brought us, where life is right now, where life is leading us. It allows us to be honest with our emotions and our experiences. It gives us freedom and permission to vent and to express or to rest, because perhaps more than any other book, the Psalms address you and I in the totality of humanity. Now, some of you are a little bit more mind-oriented, so you kind of navigate life and, and your decisions in this world through your intellect. Others of you are much more, what we say, emotional. You're heart-filled. You have big hearts, and so what guides your life as your North Star is your emotions. Or some of you don't really care about either. You're just saying, I want to do the right thing, and just tell me what to do, and that's your will. Your heart, your mind, and your will. But what Psalms does for us is telling us, in order to address you and I, it does so in the full humanity of your thinking, your feeling, and your doing. And the book of Psalms does that perhaps in the most poetic and honest way more than any other book of the Bible. It's honest about life and our emotions, our experiences, we're angry at God, we're hurt by God, we're hurt by people, we're confused and frustrated by the injustices of this world, we're not sure why theology is always sort of inept and doesn't seem to trigger an emotional response. We have all kinds of questions, and Psalms gives us permission to feel all that. And so when we come to Psalm 81, it's a typical, what they say, worship liturgical psalm. Is commanding us to worship, but in the midst of that relationship, it once again allows us to be honest about where we are in life. And so this psalm is nicely broken up into three sections, and that will form the three points for you and I here today. 
in verses 1 to 4, we see that there's a call to worship. And then in verses 6 to 11, we see that there's a call to trust in God. And then in the ending verses 12 to 16, there's a call towards repentance. So there's a call to worship, a call to trust, and the call to repentance. Another way to think about this from a different angle is that in the first point, he's giving us a command to feel a full range of emotions in our worship. And then secondly, when he says, trust me, he's saying, this is what I've done for you in history in the past. Remember my good deeds, because if you could remember this, then you can trust in me. And then thirdly, he says, if you want to come back and find full satisfaction in life where I'm sweeter than honey, satisfaction, enjoy contentment, then repent and turn your, away from your sins and come back to your heavenly Father. So worship, trust, and repentance. And let's look at this together. First, there's a call to worship. It's in verses 1 to 4. There's commands to worship. There's a description of what a worship service should be, isn't there? It's actually a very emotional command. You know, it's strong. It says in verse 1 and following, sing aloud. You know, sing joyously, jubilantly. Shout for joy. Raise a song. Blow a trumpet. You know, it's something that's emotional, something that's very inspirational. It's a mixture of voices and instruments, but it involves our thinking, but also our emotions and our doing. You know, this description of Worship is not what, you know, if I had to generalize, it's not typical Asian sort of introverted reformed worship where it's good lyrics and good content, but no one really sings or shows emotion because you're sort of insecure, like, I don't want anybody to hear my voice next to me, and like, you know, don't raise your hands, don't clap aloud. This sort of speaks against that, and God actually doesn't say you're okay to do it, but he commands you to do it. Sing aloud, shout for joy, raise a song. You know, they say in different articles and church planning manuals that there's a benefit between different denominations that we can embrace. So Presbyterians like us, we're supposed to be precise and theological. We have our doctrine down. And then they say the Baptist tradition, generally speaking, is really good at missions and evangelism and mercy ministry. They're, big, they're good at activating. You know, Presbyterians are slow in planning, but Baptists, they activate quickly. They send people out really fast. And the broader evangelical charismatic world, they broadly say they're really good at emotional worship. They express the deep doctrines of truth emotionally. And the charismatic movement, in that sense, has that positive benefit that maybe you and I could learn about. And so we see a biblical reference point for that in verses 1 to 4. Strong emotion that God commands, full of energy. The psalmist doesn't just give random, meaningless commands to worship, saying, shout for joy, or raise a song, or blow a trumpet. But the psalmist is also a good Presbyterian because he attaches theological truths to those commands. Christianity has a rational God, friends. It's not just emotions where there's fleeting and floating commands to just sing aloud aimlessly, but it attaches these emotional commands towards a biblical truth, a reason this Christianity uses ahead. It's rational. It says sing aloud because God is our strength. It says shout for joy because he was the God of your forefather Jacob. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, which references Israel's wilderness wandering. There are reasons to attach to the commands to be emotional and to use your emotions to worship. There's explanations given. There's a rationale explained 
That's what he's trying to tell us. It's worship that is both head and heart. And the book of Psalms in chapter 81 melds and joins what we oftentimes think are counter, counterintuitive. It takes deep theology and meshes it, intertwines it with jubilant, joyful, emotional worship. They're intertwined. You can't have emotional worship without deep doctrine, and deep doctrine should lead to emotional, spirit-filled worship. You have to have both, and Psalms does this. You know, it's all about emotions, but you know what? It's also all about commandments. The book of Psalms is. You know, even in verses 4 to 5, it has strong commands to this. It says, this is a statute. It goes on and says, well, yeah, rejoice. Use your heart and emotions, but he's commanding you to do it. It's a rule of God. And then he says here, I make it a decree, so which is kind of counterintuitive to us. But the Psalms is all about that, not just emotions, but really strong commands to teach us how to live. It informs our minds and says, God wants you to behave in this way. And it gives you a lot of commands to do this, both in what we saw last week through Wisdom Psalms, through the excellent sermon that Ren gave us, but also gives us direct commands that we see in Psalm 81. It also gives us models of how to live, because it gives examples. So this one guy, P.B. Bauer, wrote an interesting book that talks about directing our wills and emotions by example. And he wrote this book called The I Wills of the Psalms. And he just goes through every I will in the Psalms. And it shows us that there's a commandment, a model to live. So we see things like, I will give thanks. I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. I will tell of your wonders. And the setting of most of these psalms is worship because that's the most frequent setting and command. So he's intertwining for us, like no other religion does, an emotional component fueled by a theological command. And he's telling us this is a statute, a rule of God, it's a decree. This one commentator, Derek Kidner, he's one of my favorite commentators, but he raises an interesting question. He says, how in the world can... A God command you and I to rejoice on cue. Isn't that interesting? Because we often think emotions are outside of us. I feel angry when I feel angry. I feel happy when I feel happy. You know, if you're a Trekkie, you know, sort of dating myself, we're not like Vulcans or Spock where we can control our emotions. And you're absolutely right about that. But at the same time, we are not controlled ourselves by our emotions. There's emotions in some ways that God commands us with. So it's interesting, Christianity seems to be the only religion that actually commands emotions, doesn't it? We have to rejoice on cue. It's almost as if the Bible is saying, wait a moment, one second, okay, rejoice on cue right now. And Derek Kidner brings this out and says, that's an interesting question, a phenomenon. And he goes on and says, the reason is because the psalmist will always command us to rejoice and to worship on cue because if we know God, there's always a reason, even in the midst of our ashes, to worship, as hard as that may be. We think we can't control our emotions, but that's not what the psalm seems to indicate. John Calvin says the psalms is a mirror to our souls. And what he means by this and what Psalm 81 teaches us is that with our emotions being commanded on cue is telling us with our emotions, we're not to suppress our emotions. We don't unleash our emotions, but when we're near God, we can express our emotions in prayer and in worship. 
This one psychologist, S.G. Meyer, has said this about the book of Psalms and about emotions in general. He says, the range of emotional expression often allows the reader to express his inner life. It gives us a voice to what we feel. They assist him in verbalizing what he has been unable to communicate. In doing so, he often crystallizes the nature and identity of his problem. And so what this psychologist is not even doing a commentating on Psalms, he says, emotions, which is innate and built into the fabric of our humanity, when we give expression to our emotions, when we voice them, when we feel them, when we have freedom to express them, it helps us to crystallize the problem that we find in ourselves. It's not just head, it's also your heart. And that's why it's a mirror to our souls. And that's why Christianity has this formulation in which he can command you and I to rejoice and to feel on cue because of this theological truth. Now, for example, in the Psalms, a person's feelings are usually associated with his relationship to God. So when God is distant, the psalmist tends to feel sad and afraid, ashamed, insecure, doubtful, even angry. But when the psalm is near to God, the psalmist tends to be happy and worshipful and calm and cool and collected, even expressing love. Emotions permeate the psalms, but there's this ebb and flow, this song and dance, that whenever God seems distant, distant is when our emotions seem negative. And when God is close and we sense him through word and prayer and community and worship, then our emotions seem to be a little bit more at peace and calm and happy. That's why the psalms are oftentimes identified by their dominant mood and emotion. There's a joy of praise, there's psalms of lament, a psalm of peace, because whenever God is near, that's the result of what happens. So that's why Kidner is right. God can command you to worship on cue, because when he commands you, he's near to you. We're not robots. We can't control our emotions, but we don't suppress them. We don't vent them, but we express them when God is near. In other words, Psalms teaches us with theological truths about who God is to discipline our emotions, to use them for God's glory, for his purpose and plan. And that's something distinct and entirely unique to Christianity. And this leads us to our second point. God commands us to use our emotions and to worship him. But then secondly, in this relationship in Psalms, in verses 6 to 7, he calls us to trust him in life. And he reminds us of what he's done in the past. So let's read verses 6 to 7. It says, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress... You called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now, he basically encapsulated a whole long history of Israel in those two verses. And he's saying, you can trust me because remember what I did for your forefathers in the wilderness wandering, when they are even before that under the slavery of the Egyptians. And that's what verse 6 is saying. The shoulder of burden is probably the baskets, the materials that the Israelites had to carry to build up the infrastructure and the architecture of the kingdom of Egypt. Their hands were freed from the basket. Their burdens were lifted up. When they're in distress, they called out. That's probably Exodus 3, and God delivered them through Moses. And it says, I answered you in the secret place. That's probably the, the Mount Sinai and where thunder was representing God's voice, and Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. And he says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. This is the point. 
Isn't it true that oftentimes you and I think the God of the Old Testament seems sort of harsh, rigid? No, the Old Testament God seems very kind of stern and strict, but the God of the New Testament seems smiley and happy and gracious. And I get that, but at the same time, this verse shows us that in the Old Testament, God is just as gracious and loving. Because before he gives the law with the voice of thunder, he frees them. He sees their burden. He's compassionate. It says, I lifted the burden of your shoulders. I freed your hands from the burden. In distress, you called, I delivered you, and I freed you. See, even in the Old Testament construct, before we think God's about the Ten Commandments and he's strict, we recognize that before God commands you, he gathers you. Before he feeds you, he frees you. Because even in the Old Testament, what we recognize is this gospel principle that grace precedes law. He saves you, he forms you, he brings you to him, and then from the voice of thunder, he gives you the commandments. And that's a God of grace that we see. And he's saying, because of this, don't forget, I did this for you. Trust in me. I'm the God of history. He frees them from one slavery of the Egyptians and brings them into another slavery under his righteousness, his kingdom, his justice, his glory. We can trust in him because he's gracious to us in the past. Now, for the second point about call to trust, I want to focus on what he talks about in uh, testing you at the waters of Meribah because that's really more identifying something that prevents you from trusting in God and this is what he's talking about. Meribah is essentially talking about complaining. You and I are complainers. Because Meribah was the place that Moses and Aaron brought the Israelites in the wilderness wandering. They were tired. They wanted better food. They were tired of manna. And they were just thirsty, so they wanted water. So they quarreled with God. They argued with God. They complained to God. And that's the famous scene. Moses takes the staff, hits the rock, and water comes out, and all the thirst of the Israelites were quenched. But the point here is saying that God tested them. Can you trust me? You're thirsty, but, you know, I could give you living water. I already separated the Red Sea. I freed you from the captivity of the Egyptians. Now you have a short-term memory. And God is testing them because they're complainers. Friends, let me ask you a simple question. Do you complain? Do you quarrel? Do you criticize? Do you have a grumbling heart? Are you dissatisfied with who God is in your life in this day and age, in your circumstances? Because if you are, then we have a point of connection with the Israelites in Meribah where they complained. Do you complain about your children, children, youth group students? Do you complain about your friends, about your parents? You know, I know not some of you are going through really deep and difficult times, and it's understandable to complain. The psalm gives you to do this, permission to complain. But there's a gospel perspective on complaining that I think is captured in this one verse about testing people at Meribah. Did you realize that complaining on one level is a really deep sin? Now, for example, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, it says, the people complained in hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned with them and consumed them, some outlying parts of the camp. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, do all things without grumbling, without complaining, without disputing, quarreling. In James 5, 9, it says, do not grumble against one another. Don't complain. 
Don't quarrel. And what we're talking about here is not constructive, patient, loving criticism. And we're not talking about cries for justice and righteousness. It's not talking about that. This is just your plain old everyday complaining about life and complaining about what you did get and what you didn't get. That's everyday complaining. And you and I, friends, if you didn't realize this, we are experts at complaining. Now, I looked at this one article in a Christian publication called Relevant Magazine, trying to just capture the everyday experiences of complaining. And this was just an article written by a, a Christian woman, a housewife, a, a stay-at-home mom. And this is what she says about her life. I'm just sort of summarizing this article. She says, I don't really like cleaning the dishes. I'd rather fold laundry, change a diaper, vacuum, anything. I will gladly do a lot of things before I do the dishes, and I even have a dishwasher. And although I cringe to admit it, she writes, I have complained about having to clean the dishes to my husband and my sister and my friends, just about anyone who would listen. Typing this out even makes me sound like a whiny three-year-old, which, if I'm being honest, is probably true. Sometimes I act like a spiritual three-year-old. I complain about dishes, I complain about traffic, I complain about the weather, you name it, I probably complained about it in some form or fashion. Complaining, griping, whining, grousing, whatever you call it, she says, at its root, it's a spiritual problem, not a circumstantial one. The problem is not actually the dirty dishes, or the problem is not the backup on the I-355. It's not the snow that wouldn't budge for six months. She says, the problem at the end of the day with my complaining is me. It's a spiritual problem. The problem is how I see the world, and the problem is how I see myself in the world, because complaining says, I am the center of the world and the center of the universe. That's why Paul Tripp once said, the reality is this, wherever you live, whomever you're with, no matter what time of day, and regardless of the circumstance, you and I have the amazing ability to complain about something. And do you know what complaining does? Do you know what that heart issue says where you're the center of the universe? Your complaining basically cries out this, I deserve better. I deserve something better. Whenever we grumble and complain and quarrel and argue, we insert ourselves into the center of the universe and assume that the world revolves around us. When we don't get what we want, when we want it, the way we want it, and the timing of it, we complain. You're grumbling in your heart, you're quarreling, you're complaining, your criticism on some level could be an audible representation of a heart captured by the claustrophobic kingdom of self. Why did this have to happen? Why did my flight get canceled? Why did it have to rain here today? Why was the food like this? Why couldn't the person do this? That's the heart. That's why God tested them at Meribah. And if you're like this, then you will have a very difficult time trusting in God who says, I freed you. I set you free. I, take, I took off the burden. I freed your hands. You're going to not believe in that. You're not going to trust in God for your present circumstances if you are victim to this disease called selfishness and entitlement. A couple of diagnostic questions before we go on to our last point. Just answer this in your heart between you and God here today to figure out if you are someone who is captured by the claustrophobic kingdom of self. Just ask yourself and maybe people around you, 
do you find it easier to complain rather than give thanks? Now, if you just recorded your thoughts for the past 24 hours, how many of your thoughts would be in the complain aisle column, and how many words of thanksgiving would be in the other column? I wonder what that would look like. This general ledger of your heart of thankfulness and grumbling, what would that look like? Are you easily irritated? Are you quickly impatient? Do mundane hassles get under your skin? Would the people who live nearest to you characterize you as being thankful or critical or complaining? Do you look at the world and find many reasons to complain because things don't go your way? Do you view yourself as the one who constantly is neglected and shortchanged? Why does this always happen to me? Do you view yourself as the one who's been showering blessings but never actually receives anything back? How often do you whisper in your heart thanks to God or communicate thanks to those around you? Depending on how you answer those questions, you may be someone who never trusts in God because you think you are God. That type of heart will prevent you from believing in God who relieved you, freed you, delivered you, and answered you. And the one person who had every right to actually complain in this life because he was perfect and he loved people perfectly and he lived humbly was Jesus Christ. And he was betrayed, he was ridiculed, he was tortured. He had inner circle friends who betrayed him and most of all he died on the cross for you and me to take our place in the punishment of sin. Jesus was the one person who had every right to complain, but in all the recordings of Jesus' actions and words, he never complained. And that power for him to be content in suffering, to love people and his enemies, to go and be other-centered to this world in Jesus Christ, the one person who had every right to complain but never complained, when he died on the cross, he redeems you, he saves you, he changes you. He relieves you. He lifts the burden off of you. And that allows you slowly but surely, day by day, to be more thankful, more trusting in God, and less complaining and critical. That's what God is telling you. So he commands you to worship on cue with emotions. And then he says, you can trust me. But remember, I tested people back in the day if they complained. And I'm going to test you here today. Look at my son, Jesus. And last but not least, we look at this last call, a call to repentance. I call it repentance, but it's really a call to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. Now, it's sort of hand-in-hand hand with the second point, because if you're complaining, that means you're not content and satisfied. Are you satisfied in life with your relationships, your career, romance, friendships, where you live? kind of hard to be satisfied and content these days, isn't it? Especially in light of the past couple of years and how polarizing our culture and political climate is. It's hard to be content. I'll be honest, it's hard for me to be content with church oftentimes. I mean, you guys are wonderful, but there's something called sin in my heart too. So it's hard to preach this message about grumbling because I'm preaching to myself, complaining about you guys in my heart. <laughs> Please forgive me. <laughs> So I could resonate with this. But this call to repentance is really a call to be satisfied. And I want to try to talk about that with you here today. Dane Ortland, this PCA pastor in Chicago, has said this. The long, sad story of human history is of man's endless quest 
to find something other than God to be satisfied, to satisfy his deepest soul longings. But it is only by losing ourselves in God that we will find our true selves. He alone satisfies. Where do I get this in the passage? Read with me verse 10. He says, I am the Lord your God, and this is an idolatry. Don't worship other gods. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide. You know, I picture little birds in their nests and their moms dropping worms into their mouths. Have you seen that on YouTube or like National Geographic? These little birds open their mouths wide as mom fills their bellies. That's what God is saying. I could fill it. I'll fill you to the brim. I will fill it with myself in my son Jesus Christ. You want to be satisfied? Yeah, the world is really good. Don't fill yourself up on riches and love and promiscuity and indulgent behaviors. Those things could be good, but those are a pale in comparison to me. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. And then verse 16, but he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock and I would satisfy you. He says this, I'm going to be honey from a rock. I'm going to satisfy you. Open your mouth wide, and I'm going to feed you. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to give you the finest wheat and also the honey from a rock. I think, not to press this too strongly, but wheat and honey, I think what the psalmist is saying is that I'm going to give you nutrition, and I'm going to give you satisfaction. I preached at the youth retreat this past week. It was pretty tiring, and... I realize how old I am. It's been like 20 years since I spoke at a youth retreat, but your kids are wonderful for those of the kids who went. And I was sharing the story of a time that I was preaching at a college retreat, and at the last night of the retreat, if you're growing up in this kind of culture, you know, you get emotional. Kids tend to get saved on the last night of the retreat, and they get saved every retreat, but we try to fix that and correct that. But on this one retreat I was speaking at, it was a college retreat, and they had an open mic just to share what they're going through in life, and it took three hours and part of me was like, this is amazing. And part of me was like, I'm really tired. <laughs> I need to sleep. But they were sharing so vulnerably. They were crying. They were yelling. They were saying, my parents got a divorce because on paper it's easier to get financial aid for college. They had heart surgery. They had friends that were indulging in certain sins that fractured the family and the relationships. There was abuse, both verbal and physical, trauma from the past. And all of them had a similar theme where they were self-aware and said, I, there was this void in my heart. I was empty inside. So I would try to fill it with relationships, and that didn't work. And I would try to fill it with money, but that didn't work. And I would try to fill it with gaining approval from my parents or my friends, but that never fully satisfied. Because St. Augustine is right. In the heart of man, our hearts are restless until it finds his rest in thee. And I even share this, which I oftentimes quote, and some people make fun of me. The French philosopher, mathematician, Blaise Pascal said, in the heart of man is a God-shaped void that only God can fill. It's a puzzle piece, as I told you students. So it's a very specific, one-of-a-kind, unique puzzle piece that God in the gospel has a shape, probably like a cross, that fills it. But when we try to put money, where we try to put fame, building up your resume credentials, self-indulgence, popularity, more followers on Instagram, more followers on Snapchat. It kind of fits for a little bit, but doesn't, and it falls out, and that's why we're empty in life. And I think the psalmist is saying this. Open your mouth wide. 
you have in your heart a God-shaped void and puzzle piece that only God can fit. And when you try to fit other things as your foundational satisfaction in life, then that's the way, the, what the Bible calls sin. Food is important to the kingdom of God. That's why there's the Lord's Supper. That's why it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why the kingdom is described like a banquet with a wonderful feast. Jesus himself is described as what? Living water and a bread of life. I will give you wheat and I will give you honey. I will give you nutrition to last the everyday life, but I will give you honey to give you satisfaction for the joys of life. That's what he's saying. And it's funny because honey doesn't normally come out of a rock. It comes out of a beehive. But I think that's the point because the Psalms is saying he could take the rocks of your life, the mundane aspects of your life, the hard-heartedness of your life, the hard places of your life, and he says you could be honest about that. It doesn't change sin to be something glorious, but in the midst of sin, he could saturate it with honey, at least a little bit of a taste. That's why Oscar Wilde once said, what seems to be to us bitter trials are often blessings in disguise. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of heartache and hurt, God says, I could be your honey. I could be that sweet, savoring taste that saturates your life. If you just listen to me, have a relationship with me, hear my voice. Verse 11, they didn't listen to my voice, your ancestors. Verse 13, oh, that my people would just listen to me. Talk to him, have a relationship with him. Notice it says, listen and not obey. He's not just a stern schoolmaster saying, do everything that I say and follow these rules. He wants a relationship. He says, I just wish they listened to my voice. Can we have a relationship? I promise you I'll bring honey out of the rock. I brought water out of the rock. I promise I could do that with you. And so the question is, as we come to a close, where have you found your honey, the sweetness of your life? And you can enjoy this world. You should. God created it. It reflects him. But all the goodness of this world is only a hint and foreshadow to the, the primary source, the main beehive of Jesus' cross for you to sweeten your life, to satisfy you. Christ was that rock that was tested in Meribah. That's what 1 Corinthians 10.4 says. Jesus is the rock that could satisfy your life. It's no coincidence that the land of Canaan, the promised land, is described as a land of what? Milk and honey. Satisfaction, joy, is sweetness. And it challenges us to say that in good, as good as this world is, we all find in the heart of our hearts the world to be too sweet. And he's saying, you'll be disappointed. It's not going to last. It'll become bitter. The only sweetness that will get sweeter as you go along is your relationship with Jesus, who is the rock of your salvation, who is the one in his suffering died in your place, covered you with his blood, and he shrouds you. He says, I'm going to saturate with honey. You're going to drip in honey when Jesus comes and he holds you in the midst of your heartache and hardship and says, I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to speak to you. Listen to my voice. I'm whispering to your heart. I'm whispering into your ear. I'm going to satisfy you. I'm going to bring honey out of a rock, and that's Jesus Christ himself for you. So as Dane Ortland says, you want to find satisfaction in this life? He says, walk with God. Enjoy him. Ponder his love. This is your fullest humanity. Then and only then, you'll be satisfied, and you'll walk well with him and you'll taste the sweetness of Jesus' spiritual life for you. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray.
Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you see us where we are. You give us permission, you validate, you identify, you clarify our, our confusion, our tension of life and heartache and brokenness. Lord, we thank you that you allow us to worship you and that we could trust you because you constantly show yourself to be trustworthy, sustaining us and freeing us, molding us. And Lord, help all of us by worship and by your Holy Spirit and truth and prayer to taste that the Lord is good, the sweetness of Jesus' life for us, the honey of our lives, the sweetness and satisfaction that you will give to us. May we thirst for this with our mouths wide open. We thank you for this truth. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.